as well. We were starting to get really kind of testosterone heavy in, in uh, the grandchild department. So we do rejoice just in God's goodness uh, to our family. Open your Bibles up to uh, Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9. And I want to speak to you this morning about spiritual sclerosis. Spiritual sclerosis. So, what in the world is that all about? Well, physical sclerosis refers to a condition in which uh, the bones or soft tissue of the body uh, is subjected to a hardening or a thickening process. It's normally the result of some other disease. So that's physical sclerosis. You've heard of sclerosis of the arteries, that sort of thing. But there is a spiritual sclerosis as well, or at least there is because I made it up. And uh, that refers to a, to a spiritual condition in which people no longer relate to God with a, a vibrant and a living faith, but instead they become hardened into a formalism or a dead orthodoxy. So they become thickened or hardened in their spiritual relationship to the God of the universe. And such is the nature of the people of Israel. Let me take just a few minutes to sort of recount their history with you. I'm, you know it well, I'm sure, but it, it helps to be reminded of such things. When God delivered his chosen people out of bondage in Egypt... He brought them to the base of Mount Sinai and there entered into a covenant with them. And according to Exodus chapter 19 and verse 6, God says to them, You shall be a kingdom of priests. That is, I have redeemed you from your bondage and no other people has ever been delivered by their God like Israel was delivered. And I have done it for a purpose. And that purpose is that you will represent me to the nations. And I will install you in your homeland. And that homeland is at the crossroads of civilization. And so as the the nations pass through this realm, they will encounter me. You are to be a kingdom of priests. But as we know the sad story, over the next 800 years, the nation progressively grew more distant from their God. They became increasingly hard-hearted to him. Until the time and place after many, many prophets had been sent by God to call the people back, and those prophets had been ignored, that God finally judged his people in the great Babylonian captivities. 2 Chronicles chapter 36, actually, verses 15 and 16, kind of spell it out for us in summary form. The chronicler writes there, The Lord, the God of your fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God despised his words and and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. And so they were swept from their land, their temple demolished, 
And they went off into the great Babylonian exile. Well, after 70 years, God, true to his word through the prophet Jeremiah, brings his people back into their ancient homeland, at least a remnant of them. And they get to begin again. God moved in the heart of the Persian king Cyrus to issue that decree, and into the land they went. And they began again with God, and, and, they, and they began with him in a, in a passionate sort of way, but it wasn't long before again the coldness of their hearts overtook them. And the nation descended again into apostasy and unbelief. It wasn't long before the high priesthood of Israel became a political plum that was awarded by the first Greek and then Roman overlords in exchange for bribes. It wasn't all that long before the religious reformers, the scribes and the Pharisees, originally arising during that intertestamental period between the close of Malachi and the opening of Matthew, brought to the people these messages of reformation. It wasn't long before they too lost sight of what it was, what their purpose And they too became hardened in their traditions and cold towards God. We open the New Testament pages in Matthew and we find the Pharisees and the scribes to be the most hostile opposers of the very Son of God himself. Their religious traditions, their institutions now suffering from a serious case of spiritual sclerosis. It's into this setting that God sends forth his son in the fullness of time, that he comes to his people to seek and to save those who are lost. But they'd not have him. They would not have him. John writes in his gospel, chapter 1, verse 11, he came to his own, but those who were his own did not receive him. Such is the sad state of the nation of Israel. And so here we are, we find ourselves in the ninth chapter of Matthew's gospel. We have been looking for some time now at chapters 8 and 9, and we've talked about they're arranged around a series of miracles. But woven into those series of miracles is this increasing chasm that is growing between Jesus and the religious leadership of the nation, the scribes, principally the scribes and the Pharisees. And there's just a continuing widening between them and and a hostility that grows. You can sort of trace it here a little bit, taking you to chapter 8 and uh, verses 2 through 4 where Jesus heals the leper, and and after he heals the leper, he instructs him, don't tell anybody else, but go directly to Jerusalem and show yourself to the priest. This is kind of a prophetic challenge, and we talked about that when we covered this passage. Go to the priest and show him that you have been healed of your leprosy, that Messiah is here, and his kingdom blessings are coming upon the land. And so the man doesn't obey immediately, but, but we're we're quite sure that he eventually finds his way down there and issues, as it were, the prophetic challenge because we find out later in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 5, 
that a delegation from the scribes and the Pharisees is now sent to Capernaum, where Jesus is ministering from, to investigate what's going on. These miracles are occurring all over the, all over the area of northern Israel and Galilee. And the leadership wants to know what's going on. And so in Luke chapter 5, verse 17, following the chronology here, it says, Pharisees and scribes are lawyers from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem even. They come to investigate the claims that Messiah is here. Chapter 9 of Matthew's Gospel, and we looked at this last week, verses 1 through 8 is this incredible encounter between Jesus and the religious authorities here in which Jesus asserts his divine authority in a way that he has not yet to this point. He claims the authority to forgive sin. And by doing so, he is laying down the gauntlet that he's claiming to be God himself. Now, he demonstrates his authority, of course, by raising the paralytic and thus, by extension, his ability to forgive sin. Well, it wasn't well received. It wasn't well received by the, by the religious authorities, by the Pharisees and the scribes. They didn't roll over at that point and say, oh, gee, you're right, we got it wrong, you're Messiah. In the face of this overwhelming evidence, they further hardened their hearts Their hostilities further grew. Their chasm widened even greater between them. This was an an amazing showdown and confrontation. Matthew, continuing on the narrative here and the text before us this morning, beginning in verse 9 and running through verse 17, leads us to see even further this chasm. And it begins in verse 9 with Jesus' calling of Matthew as one of his disciples, one of his close followers. Matthew, the tax collector. This is an outrageous thing for Jesus to do. To call a tax gatherer, a tax collector, to be one of his inner core group of disciples. As one author says, this was a a calculated snub to the conventional ideas about religious respectability. Of all the people you will choose to to be your inner core, to choose a tax gatherer is an intentional thumbing of the nose, as it were, at the religious leadership of the nation. That's because tax collectors were considered to be outside of the religious pale. They were traitors to the nation. They worked under a franchise basis with the government of Rome in order to collect taxes for the people for this hated Roman government, and they frequently resorted to extortion in order to line their own pockets with the proceeds, the taxes. They were social outcasts. Social outcasts. Now, Jesus is ministering here in Capernaum. Capernaum is an interesting little village located on the the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And it's at the crossroads of a great trade route that that runs from Syria to Egypt. And it's also a very prosperous fishing village. 
It's actually an ideal location to establish a major tax collection enterprise. As the, as the caravans would, would process from Syria to Egypt and back from Egypt to Syria. And you remember, Egypt is the breadbasket of the ancient world. So as these, these trade uh, groups were moving back and forth, they had to pass by the road, and there was the toll booth. And they'd be collecting customs. The fishermen, as they brought in their wares from the Sea of Galilee to be salted and then transported and sold down in Jerusalem, they would collect duties, taxes upon their catch. It was actually an ideal place to collect a lot of money. And here we find Matthew, verse 9. Jesus went on from there, it says, and he, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and he followed him. How understated this account is. Jesus is, is sort of walking along. We get the picture and, and he sees this man, Matthew, sitting here in the tax booth, the toll booth. And he's collecting duties. This is his responsibility. This is his job. And Jesus just issues to him a very simple summons. Matthew, leave everything behind and follow me. And the text says, and he got up and he followed him. And he got up and he followed him. Now, many, many people have observed over the years a profound a reaction this is. Peter and his business associates were summoned from their fishing trade to follow Jesus. And it says they left their boats and their nets and they followed him. But later... They go back. See, because you can always go fishing. But when you walk out on the Romans and the tax collection franchise, there's no going back. There's no return. Matthew literally leaves it all to follow Jesus. And this call of this man, Matthew, sets up the confrontation that will be described to us in verses 10 through 17. And as we observe the confrontation here that will occur, and it's a confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees and scribes, the religious leadership, what I want us to see here are three characteristics. Three characteristics of a a person experiencing religious or spiritual sclerosis. Three characteristics of a person experiencing spiritual sclerosis so that we might diagnose and treat it in our own lives before it is too late. So it's an opportunity this morning as we work through this text together and observe what is happening in the nation of Israel that by the Spirit of God to do a little introspection. Take a look inside our own hearts. So let's do that together. First characteristic, number one, those suffering from spiritual sclerosis are removed from the needs of the people. They are removed from the needs of the people. Verse 10, then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, check it out, 
Many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Sometime after Matthew's conversion, we don't know exactly how long, but likely not very long, he holds a banquet at his house. He throws a party. And he invites Jesus and his disciples to his house, that is Matthew's house, in order to attend the banquet, in order to celebrate with him. Now, perhaps Matthew does this in order to introduce Jesus to all of his friends and associates. That would be a logical reason to do it, I suppose. But because Matthew is a a social outcast, His guest list for the banquet reads like a who's who of disreputable people. It's all the people you would never want to invite to your home for a party. That's his guest list. That's his guest list. And the reason for that is is because tax collectors are are considered outside of the, the religious pale of the nation. Tax collectors regularly deal with Gentiles. They are exchanging monies with Gentiles. They are working indirectly, at least, if not directly, for the Roman overlords. So they are in this contact with the Gentile peoples. And according to the religious leadership of the nation, to be in contact with the Gentiles was to become defiled. So they were defiled people. They were also considered disloyal people. So they're defiled and they're disloyal They're cut off from polite society. They are are not the kind of people you want to hang around with. And because this had come upon them, they became careless with the, the, the purity laws of the nation. Because they were considered outside anyway, then, then the things that, that led to their ceremonial you know, defilement or uncleanliness, they just sort of forgot about. And so they didn't really maintain the stringent regulations that Pharisaical Judaism would have required. The tax gatherers, tax collectors, verse 10, and sinners, you see it? What a list, huh? Here's, who's, at, who's, at the par- who's at the party, honey? Well, just the tax gatherers and the sinners. Wow. Makes for quite a group. Sinners. That's an that's a interesting term. It's a, it's a term that the Pharisees actually would use of people, the sinners. These were people who, because of their professions, could not maintain the pharisaical, the pharisaical standards for ceremonial purity. The things they did for a living were constantly causing them to violate these religious standards and, and to be ceremonially impure. Now, sinners also included members of the community whose lives had been broken by the sin of immorality. We see an illustration of that. We won't turn there, but Luke chapter 7, verse 19. So there are those who, because of what they do for a living, can't maintain the ceremonial purity. And it's those whose sin has has damaged their lives. They are the sinners. They are the people who are ostracized from society, and they are labeled sinners. Sinners. One writer puts it this way. Quote, for the Pharisees, a person is not a sinner because he violates the law, 
but because he does not endorse Pharisaic interpretation of the law. So they are not those that are necessarily violating the Mosaic law, but they are, they are violating the Pharisaical interpretation of the Mosaic law. They are outside the pale. The Pharisees, they're, they're focused on external purity. They're all about the outsides, not so much about the insides. When we worked through the Sermon on the Mount, we saw that over and over again, right? Jesus is concerned about the heart, about what's going on inside us, not so much about what's going on on the outside of us. But for the Pharisees, it's just the opposite. It's all about the externals. And so for them, they are absolutely horrified by the idea of sitting down and breaking bread, one of the most intimate of of human interactions, with people who are so obviously defiled, so obviously broken, so obviously icky in a spiritual sort of way, right? I mean, they're not going to associate with these kind of people. And they're certainly not going to sit down and have a meal with them together. So verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? I mean, this is, this is incredible. I mean, even back in verse 10, Matthew indicates it with the behold, right? Check it out. Pay attention. Look at this. They had a party and look who they invited. And the Pharisees say to his disciples, what in the world is going on here? Why would you have dinner with these people? Now, this question here is, is not, a, not a question designed to solicit an answer. Okay? This is not a request for information. This is, a, this is really just an opportunity to try to discredit Jesus. Notice they don't ask Jesus, they ask his disciples. They approach his disciples with the question. And the question is about how does your master, how is it that your master, your teacher, is eating with disreputable people? They're trying to discredit him in the eyes of his inner court. They're trying to create in their minds sort of suspicions or questions. Yeah. Why is it that we do that? Jesus responds, verse 12. He hears the grumbling. The Pharisees who who resent the grace and the mercy that Jesus is showing to the down and outers. And so he responds to the Pharisees. And it's interesting, verse 12, how he does it. He, he responds in a really rather caustic way. And he does it via a parable. Verse 12, a parable. He goes on to speak a parable. But when Jesus heard this, verse 12, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. What kind of answer is that? What kind of an answer is that? What Jesus is saying to the the Pharisees here, listen, healthy people, it's it's just kind of well known, healthy people don't go to the doctors. And men. Right? (laughs) Healthy women and men don't go to the doctors. Yeah, healthy people, they don't go to the doctors. They They don't sense any need to go to the doctors. 
Only people who go to doctors are people who are aware they're sick. He's saying, Pharisees, you, you have no interest in me because you don't sense that you're sick. You think you're healthy. You think you're righteous. You think God is pleased with you. But it's all of these broken people. These people that are deeply aware of the fact that they have sinned against God. Deeply aware of their need to be reconciled to their Creator. They are the ones who flock to the doctor. And I'm the doctor. I'm the doctor. It's interesting here that Jesus doesn't let this parable just sit. He goes on to sort of drive it home. He goes on in verse 13 to drive it home. He says, parable. You know, go away, ponder this. It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But then let me just, in case you, in case you, you know, can't get this, let me just apply it for you. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. <coughs> it's an interesting expression here. Go and learn what this means. It's a rebuke, actually. That's what it is. It's a rebuke. What it basically is saying is that you have missed the meaning of the Scripture. You've missed the point of the passage. So go back and study it again until you get it right. Now, why do I say this is a rebuke? Because it's being spoken to those people whose lives are given to the study of what? The Scriptures. Given to the study of the Scriptures. Their whole, their whole lives are handed over to, to being spent, immersed in the Word of God. And Jesus says to them, hey, you guys have missed the whole point. You missed the whole point. I don't think there's, more, there's, a, there's not a more offensive way to, to sort of speak to them. All of you with your, with your doctors of theology, you have missed the simple point of the text. Go back and do a little more Bible study. And the lesson you've missed, verse 13, comes from Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. Now Jesus is basically telling them that, that they're guilty of the exact same transgression as their ancestors. That is that they're, they're big on ritual and, and short on substance. Your head is full of theological knowledge, but you are, you are big on ritual, you are short on substance. You know the words of Scripture, but you don't know the meaning of Scripture. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. This is a, this is a Semitic expression, and it, and it doesn't mean that sacrifice is unimportant. What it means is, is that between the two, the more basic of the two is compassion. Compassion lies at the foundation of sacrifice. I desire compassion, not sacrifice. Jesus is saying to these Pharisees that that what is most offensive about them is their attitude that they do not care about other people. They don't care. They don't care that these people are far from God. 
They don't care that these, these people are defiled. They don't, they don't care that, that these people are dead in their trespasses and sins and are on their way to an eternal judgment. They don't care. They just want to stay away from them and keep them at an arm's length as well. I don't want any of your messiness getting on me. So stay there. We're content in our, in our pursuit of, of, our, of our religious orthodoxy to just leave them on the outside. Let them go. Wouldn't give it a second thought. Beloved, that is the very opposite, right? That is the exact opposite of what Jesus' mission is all about. What Jesus' mission is all about. So the first characteristic here of a, of a spiritual sclerosis, a spiritual hardening, is, is that you're removed from the needs of people. You couldn't care less that there's a world out there dying. Secondly, spiritual sclerosis manifests itself in that they don't rejoice in the presence of God. Verse 14, then the disciples of John came to him asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Another challenge to the ministry of Jesus. And and this is an interesting challenge because they're basically challenging him over the issue of fasting and, and feasting. And what they're saying to him is that how come you guys are feasting when we're all fasting? What's going on here? Both the disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of the Pharisees, we participate in these weekly fasts. Actually, twice a week. Monday, Thursday fasts. And this fasting ritual is not required in the Old Testament, but prescribed by the religious leadership of the day. So it is the ritual of fasting. And the fact that Jesus and his disciples do not participate in these non-obligatory fasts is, is seen as very inconsistent on their part, that they are being disloyal to God. And so this is the direction the attack comes. It's interesting, actually, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, you don't have to turn there, but by that point, they, they refer to Jesus as a glutton. He's a glutton. He never fasts. All he does is feast. Is what they accuse him of. This is an interesting, this is kind of an interesting attack on him. And it's a combined attack. It's an attack of the, of the Pharisees, but it also includes the, the disciples of John the Baptist. Now, by this time, John the Baptist is in prison. And much earlier, he had already transferred his disciples, as it were, to, to follow Jesus. Yet there is still some hanging around in the old way. So Jesus responds to them again with a parable. He answers their their censorious question by by a reference to marriage. Speaks to them about marriage. Isn't that interesting about Jesus? People ask questions, right? And then he answers them. And it seems like he never answers the question they ask. He always answers this question. He leaves them going, what was that? It's because he answers the real question. Not the, not the external question that's being asked. And so, so that's what happens here. He, he answers them with a parable about marriage. So what in the world is all that about? Verse 15, Jesus said to them, 
The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast. What's all that about? Well, marriage. Marriage, and a, and a reference to the, to the feast that belongs to the, to the celebration of the marriage ceremony, should strike a very deep chord among the people of Israel. It's one of the recurring themes of the prophetic literature. It talks about the, the place where God stands in, in relation to his people, with God as the bridegroom and the people as the bride. It's, it's all through the Old Testament. It appears in the Psalms, it appears in the prophets. God as the bridegroom, the nation as the bride. Now, God had divorced his nation because of their spiritual unfaithfulness. We're told in in Isaiah 50 and verse 1, Jeremiah 3 and verse 8 and so forth. But the prophets speak about a time when Messiah will return, that there will be a a joyful future reunion for the nation. And this, this reunion for the nation when the Messiah's kingdom is established is likened unto a wedding feast. For example, Isaiah chapter 62 and verse 5. Speaking of that future day, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. So when Jesus, in verse 15 here, makes this this reference to the wedding feast, this should have caused lights to go on. Remember, he's, he's speaking to people who are steeped in the Old Testament. The lights should be going on here. By answering them with a, with a reference to the wedding, Jesus And and his claim here to be the bridegroom, he is laying claim to be the Messiah of Israel, God himself. I am the bridegroom, he says. Now this motif appears in in a number of places in the Gospels. You remember John's Gospel. John chapter 2, right? The first public miracle that John records in his Gospel. He records seven miracles. That's the structure of his Gospel. The first miracle he records happens at a what? It happens at a wedding. It happens at a wedding. And there at that wedding, Jesus does the most amazing thing. He turns water into wine. He turns water into wine. A lot of people scratch their heads. What in the world is going on there? And the way he does it is kind of peculiar as well. He does it subtly, right? He does it subtly. But what's going on back there is, is that Jesus is, is subtly assuming the role of the bridegroom at this wedding feast, and, and he, is, he is lavishly providing wine to all the guests. He's laying claim to be the bridegroom of Israel. And those later, we're told in John's Gospel, later they came to see and understand the reality of what he was doing. John chapter 3, John the Baptist, he introduces Jesus to the nation and he introduces him with a reference to the bridegroom. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 28, he says, You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, this is John the Baptist speaking, I am not the Christ, I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. 
John says, look, the bridegroom, the bridegroom is here. The Messiah is here. It's a good quote from one of my all-time favorite books, perhaps my all-time favorite book, called The Greatness of the Kingdom. A little quote here for you. McLean writes, In the divine person of the regal bridegroom, the long-promised kingdom was at hand. And in his presence, for those who had acknowledged him, it was a time for great rejoicing and feasting. The bridegroom is here, and when the bridegroom is here, it's time for a party. Live it up. Live it up. Now, the basic problem here, back in Matthew 9 and verse 15, is that the disciples of John and the the Pharisees and their disciples, they're in the presence of Messiah. They are in the presence of the bridegroom, and they don't recognize it. They can't see it. Instead, they prefer to continue in the sorrowful practices of those who are looking for him to come. They continue their their fastings twice a week and just gloom and doom. And when will the deliverer come? And he's standing right there. He's standing right there. And he and his disciples are are enjoying the wedding feast. And everybody's looking at him and and they just can't believe. They see it with contempt. They see it with hearts of unbelief. God is in their midst. They look like they've been baptized in lemon juice and weaned on a dill pickle, right? No interest at all. But the days will come, Jesus says. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast. Very interesting statement here. Jesus is implying by this statement that that the, the nation will not accept their bridegroom. This is a a hint of what is to come. They will not receive their bridegroom. There is a time coming when not while he will go away, he will be taken away. It's a a term of of, um, violence, really. He's going to be taken from them. I think it echoes Isaiah 53 and verse 8 where it says he was taken away unto slaughter. There'll come a time when he is taken away. And when that time comes, his disciples will fast and mourn. And inappropriately so. Because the nation will have refused their king. And the time of sorrow will come upon them. This is a, this is a veiled reference, beloved, to his, to his crucifixion. To his crucifixion. Spiritual sclerosis. Removed from the needs of the people. Don't rejoice in the presence of God. Can't see it. Third, rigid in their traditions. Third, rigid in their traditions. This follows on here, verses 16 and and 17. And it's, it's two related parables. So you really have four parables in this section. You have the parable about the physician. You have the parable about the wedding. Then we have two more parables. One about a patch. And what about a wineskin? And these two additional parables, Jesus tells, and they, and they spring from his statement about there's going to become a time when the bridegroom will be taken away. The bridegroom will be taken away. 
These parables reveal the condition of the nation. The condition of the nation. Israel had developed a a religious system that was comfortable and it was complacent. It was unconcerned with the destiny of their fellow man and it it was even hostile to the God they claimed to serve. And Jesus is saying here in these two parables that in light of this kind of of stubborn blindness, this entire system is bankrupt and has to go. It's bankrupt. It has to go. It has to be liquidated. Jesus is speaking here in these parables about the incompatibility between the new and the old. Between the new and the old. So let's pick it up, verse 16. No one... No one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and a worse tear results. Now, in this day and age, clothing was expensive and hard to come by. And so patching your clothing was a very commonplace thing to do. You'd patch your clothes. But in that day, everybody knew that there gets to be a point in time when the garment is beyond patching. It's too old, it's, it's too worn out, it's too threadbare, it's too rotten. And that if you patch it at that point in time, you put the patch on that rotted old garment, then when the next time it's washed and the patch begins to shrink, it's just going to shred the garment. It's going to completely tear it apart. The garment will end up in worse condition than it was before. So here's the central truth. There's a point of this parable. He's saying, listen, Messiah's kingdom is like the patch. Messiah's kingdom is like the patch. It cannot be added onto the old garment of Pharisaical tradition. You can't just take Messiah's kingdom and superimpose it on top of the corruption that exists now. It's incompatible. He goes on to reinforce this. Verse 17, nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskin bursts, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. Now, wineskins were made by killing an animal. They would then take off its, its head and its, its feet. They would... They would stitch it up, and and then they would tan it in such a way to try to minimize the unpleasant taste. And then they they would put the new wine into it. And and a new wine is a a wine that's still in the fermentation process, so it's it's giving off a lot of gas. And and they need a a new skin that's that's somewhat pliable and can expand as as the volume expands under pressure. The old wine skin is one that you've been using for a long time, and, and eventually the, the skin is no longer pliable. It becomes rigid. It becomes hard and inflexible. And if you were to fill that skin, that old, rigid, inflexible skin with a new wine, as the pressure builds, it's just going to burst it wide open, and you're going to lose the skin, and you're going to lose the wine. Everybody knows that. Everybody in that day and age They know that. You need to put the new wine into a new skin. So what is this this about? What does this mean? 
It's simply this. You can't retain the old system. You can't retain the old system. The old system, the present system of Pharisaical Judaism is like the old wineskin. You pour the kingdom truth into that old system and it's going to rip it wide open and you're going to lose both. It needs to be discarded. It's worn out. The original purist movement of the Pharisees has now become hardened into a system of legalism and hypocrisy and materialism and self-absorption. And listen, people entrenched in those kinds of systems, they're oblivious to the fact that this thing is old and worn out. In fact, they insist, and and Luke records this in a parallel passage, Luke 5, verse 39, they insist the old, reference to the wine, is good enough. We don't need the new wine. The old wine's good enough. Good enough. Not so. Listen to me, beloved. Messiah's kingdom, Messiah's kingdom and that kingdom message, it never reforms people. You understand that? It is never poured on top of the old. The old has to go and the new comes. In fact, the Apostle Paul speaks of it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. You cannot pour the gospel on top of someone and reform them. The old man has to go and the new man comes. It transforms everything. Everything. So what do we do? What do we do with this passage? I mean, this section of Matthew is, is about the spiritual bankruptcy of the nation of Israel. It is, it is providing the, the, the background and understanding of the increasing rift that is growing between Jesus and the nation. This is going to culminate, of course, in their unpardonable sin in chapter 12 and then their future crucifixion of their own king. So is it just, you know, historical interest? Or is there something we can take from this. Is there a way to apply this message to you and me? I think there is. I think there is. I think, I think that you and I can experience the same kinds of symptoms of spiritual sclerosis. The same kinds of symptoms. We can grow hard and inflexible. We can become ignorant and unconcerned. For those who are down and out, those who are hurting, those who are outside the family of God here, right? Our pursuit of God can become joyless, locked into traditions and formalities. We come in here on Sunday morning and we know exactly how it's going to go. We have a liturgy. We don't print it, but we have one. I know we have one because whenever we mess with it, we hear about it. Right? How come we sang five songs in a row? You can't do that. You know, it's written. (laughs) Our hearts, our hearts are the same wicked place of the scribes and the Pharisees. 
We are susceptible to these things. Drawn off the mark. Listen, when that happens, there is a, there is a solution, and the solution is the gospel. We need to remember that Jesus Christ came and died in our place. That our sin has been forgiven by His shed blood. And that by faith in Him, we are now made righteous with God and and totally and completely forgiven all of our sin. And then, beloved, in, in light of that wonderful, liberating truth, we need to get up and go forward. We need to get up and go forward. I mean, if there's some part of this message the, this morning that, that the Spirit of God is using to really to prick your heart, to say to you, you kept talking about being unconcerned for other people. I, I feel that pain. Yeah, I feel that pain. The answer is not to walk out, head hanging, eyes on the ground. Woe is me. The answer is to look up. Christ has forgiven you even this sin. He has has given you life anew. Go forth from this place with the grace of God washing over you with hope and with a desire to change what needs to be changed. Go forth in peace, my beloved brethren. Let's pray. Our Father, we look at the history of your chosen people, Israel. We can see all too clearly the temptations and failures of our own spiritual lives. They who experienced your redemption up close and personal and yet found it so hard to walk in obedience to you. Our Father, we too know that redemption in Christ. And yet the war continues within us. The struggle continues. And Father, we confess that we don't always win. In fact, we confess, our Father, that we we lose a good deal of the time. That we don't live in the way that we would like to live. We don't live up to our best expectations and hopes. And we fall short much of the time. And yet, our Father, you have atoned for and provided for these things through Jesus Christ. That your love for us doesn't vary because of our obedience, our good days and bad. That our justified status before you remains intact because Jesus Christ lives even this day and sits at the right hand of the Father. And so, Lord, may your Spirit, even in these moments, wash over us and remind us of the truth that we have been set free. And let us arise and go forth from this place with a a renewed hope, not a heart heavy in guilt, but a renewed hope to live for your glory in this week to come. Do these things, we pray, our Father, for Jesus' sake. Amen.